Hey folks, uh, welcome to another edition of the Mental Health Podcast and uh, I'm excited today uh, to be talking to Sarah and I can't wait for you guys to hear uh, what she has to say. Hey Sarah, how are things with you? <laughs> I'm well, Sanjay. How are, how are you doing? <laughs> um, it, it's been interesting, you know, uh, it's just been a little overwhelming to be honest, you know, considering a lot of the conversations that I've had along the podcast, it's just been very highlighting and um, I don't know, I, at times it's just been mind blowing because some of the conversations that people have had and the things that people have brought up, uh, it's just been, you know, sort of it's taken me a while to process it all and take it all in so um you know that that's where i'm at um that being said you know the first thing that i ask people is like you know who is sarah you know where is she coming from and like you know can you give yourself an elevator pitch on where you're at so people know you know who, who i'm talking to as well so yeah so um, I can introduce myself, like, like, how do I encapsulate myself within uh, 30 seconds? But I'm, I'm uh, Dr. Sarah Adler. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a professor at um, Stanford Department of Psychiatry. And I um, am wholly and solely dedicated to improving mental health for as many people as possible, democratizing mental health care in the United States. I, um, have spent my entire career um, in psychology focusing on increasing access to care. So making sure that people get really high quality care and people who don't necessarily look like me can get really high mm -hmm. quality care. So, right. um, and um, that's my passion, that's my mission. And I founded a company called Wave Life, which is um, a platform that um, provides access to a pretty cool app and also pretty cool human beings to support mm -hmm. people where they are. And we're really targeting a uh, younger generation, younger folks right now, but we're mm -hmm. accessible for everyone. Interesting. Thank you for for that intro, and um, I'm I and I'm sure you know it needed that kind of intro as well. But uh, um, th that being said, I I am kind of curious. Like I I ask people, everybody who comes into the podcast, this question of what does mental health mean to you, and like yeah. you know I I'm gonna start away with that question. So. <laughs> Totally. And I think um, mental health is, I can give you my intellectual professor answer, but I'm going to give you the personal answer first, which is um, mental health to me is the ability to move towards the life that I want to be living. And mm -hmm. I can never sort of achieve the life that I want to be living. I don't look at it as an end goal, but it mm -hmm. is um, the skills and the tools and the systems and the environments and the things that I do for myself, the things that I kind of ask others to do for me, my interactions mm -hmm. with society that allow me to move towards the life I want to live. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, I sort of believe, um, you know, our, our, we shouldn't say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness we should say life liberty and the pursuit of um living the life you want which is not about happiness happiness is transient it moves up and down but right. I, i'm fundamentally a believer that um we should all have access to the skills and the tools that we need whether that mm -hmm. be 
medication, whether that be cognitive behavioral therapy, whether that be coaching, whether that be self-care, whether right. that be interacting with the world in a in a safe way um, mm -hmm. from a policy perspective, but we all should be able to live the lives that and move towards living the lives that we want to live. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like you mentioned a few good points there. So the pursuit of happiness, I, I know there's a movie that's titled The Pursuit of Happiness. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about like what you meant by, uh, you know, transient nature of happiness and like why are people sort of struggling to sort of understand what that means as well? So, yeah. Yeah. So I think, right, we um, generally as a society, I mean, even built into, is it in the Constitution or the whatever it is, it's built in somewhere in, in the United States. So culturally, it the pursuit of happiness as if happiness is somehow this thing that we all deserve to enjoy but really when we think about it happiness is an emotion just like any other emotion like sadness like anger like um uh fear and emotions are like waves mm -hmm. they go up and down and sometimes mm -hmm. they're high and sometimes they're low and i actually mm -hmm. believe that fundamentally a lot of what really brings people into um to uh, work on their mental health is because they have a lot of self-judgment around not being happy. And so right. actually a lot of my work is dedicated to allowing people to accept the wide range of emotions at any mm -hmm. given time and to build skills to cope with them rather than right. to focus on the distress that they're caused because they're not happy. <laughs> so, I think that that's that's kind of how I think about it. And I think we get we get sucked into this trap of believing we're supposed to be happy. No, human beings are supposed to feel everything. And right. we just need right. to be able to cope with those feelings when they come up. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I struggle with this aspect of what happiness means to me. And I struggle with the aspect of uh, how do I sort of uh, ensure that I am allocating a certain time to do certain things that can make me happy. Um, and, you know, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, it's a spectrum of emotions wherein like, you know, we go through a lot of different things and uh, happiness is just one part of it. And we as human beings sort of want to live that kind of lifestyle as well. So, you know, given this, and I noticed you mentioned something about waves. So can you highlight, you know, what, you know, the whole science behind waves is and what are you trying to sort of high, uh, you know, showcase when you talk about waves as well? So yeah, yeah. So um, wave again is about increasing access to high quality care, and mm -hmm. usually in this day and age, um, the people who really have access to high quality mental health care that's science backed and evidence based, and we know that works, are people mm -hmm. who look like me, um, mm -hmm. high SES white folk. Um, mm -hmm. And we have access to the best therapists. We have access to, um, but that's totally ridiculous. There's only 550,000 licensed therapists in the country. And we know right. that there are exponential growth of people who need mental health care. So the system mm -hmm. just doesn't work from a supply and demand perspective. And so what I really wanted to do is build mm -hmm. something that wasn't dependent necessarily on sort of the traditional model of psychotherapy, which is like one-to-one -one patient care, but really mm -hmm. looked at the the whole person instead mm -hmm. of saying most of the time when people show up to therapy when people show up to get mental health care it's because there's something that has happened there mm -hmm. there's an acute event that has caused them distress and what mm -hmm. we're trying to 
through it wave is back up from that and say mental health care is something that is like, again, a wave that sort of mm -hmm. flows over time. And our right. job help you learn the skills to keep you out of those acute events. But mm -hmm. when you actually have them, because everyone does, we also mm -hmm. have the right level of support there. So we're trying mm -hmm. to move looking at mental health as something that's more of a, um, something you tend to every day, not just when it gets so bad that you need it. Um, mm -hmm. And um, But making sure that all of those things are evidence-based, scientifically backed, and that, that it's gonna be effective. Interesting. So, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of things I, I'm just trying to, you know, decouple in, in the conversation itself. Um, you mentioned the term SES. For people who don't know what that means, can you sort of highlight and like, you know, explain, uh, you know, <laughs> what That's that entails right. as well? Yeah. Basically rich people, <laughs> people high socioeconomic status who have a bunch of money, they can afford okay. to see, pay $200, $300, $400 every week to go see a therapist. But that's just not accessible for 90%, right? The other 90% of the country. And don't doesn't that other 90% deserve high quality care too? So that's when, and not only that, it's it's most therapists also look like me are white women. We know that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it also is, it creates an accessibility barrier for folks who don't look like me. Maybe mm -hmm. they want to go to someone who looks like them. And that's really mm -hmm. important too. Um, so mm -hmm. we need to be really thinking about how do we develop lower cost, but still scientifically backed high quality solutions um, mm -hmm. that really give people access to things that we know work. And that's why we, we found it wave. Okay. Um, and the other thing that I am sort of familiar with is one-on-one, -on -one, you know, therapy. And, you know, I know there is an option of group therapy as well, wherein like I can go in and like have and sit and uh, have conversations. But you mentioned something about one-to-many, wherein like, you know, I, I'm just curious, like how you foresee that or like what do you see value add in terms of how those things are going to work as well? So, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's actually sort of a complicated but really exciting um, issue. Mm -hmm. I fundamentally believe in my research and my work has been um, sort of how do we actually give people what they need at the right time? So mm -hmm. if you're in the middle of a depressive episode, maybe you mm -hmm. need one-to-one -one psychotherapy. But if you're mm -hmm. not, maybe or group psychotherapy could actually be a great option for you. But mm -hmm. what are the things that we can do to keep you out of that depressive episode? Or what if mm -hmm. you're depression actually can be managed through something called guided self-help so that you can use an app to help you. What if it's not as severe? So mm -hmm. I think what we try to do is instead of thinking about um, kind of a one-size-fits-all model to mental health where mm -hmm. you're struggling, you need to go to group, you need to go to therapy, we're sort of looking at it as expansive. Like there's a lot we can teach you on how to take care of yourself in these moments mm -hmm. where things aren't so terrible that can really mm -hmm. help when things are. And so what that allows us to do is save the really expensive one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy or even group psychotherapy for when you really, really need it. But the mm -hmm. rest of the time, free up resources um, or, uh, or use resources that can help you in the moment. Because it's Definitely. part of what we're doing there is using predictive analytics and machine learning to identify who belongs where at what time? So you mm -hmm. come into our app, we ask you a bunch of questions and we sort of say like, hey, Sanjay, like, are, where are you right now? What do you need today? And based on your right. answer, we can recommend things that you need. And if you need a higher level of care, we can give that to you. But um, mm -hmm. we're not going to make an assumption that you need a higher level of care if you don't. So that allows us to save the resources for when mm -hmm. you do 
Um, you know, I think I've sort of experienced this myself because, you know, I did crisis counseling. And, you know, that the, the thing that I noticed there was like, unless somebody asks for help, you're not allowed to help, right? And, you know, th this is something that I, I just wanted to touch upon where you said, hey, you know what? Um, if you need help, then, you know, we can sort of help as well. So do you, do you see a complex dynamic sort of developing here? Or like, do you see an answer to this question where, you know, people, even though they may not know how to ask for help, how do you sort of ask for help as well? So, Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that, that that's a, such a super complicated issue because um, although the tide is starting to turn on stigma associated with asking for help, I think, again, sort of cultural issues of people um, who don't look like you or you don't believe are going to be able to help you or if you've been gaslit medically like right your 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 people women and people of color sort of traditionally are the medical profession tell them that it's all in their head like that's a bad thing i think like all of that interferes with people asking for help and although there is a shift especially with gen z towards mm -hmm. kind of demanding mental health care and getting um saying like this is a human right that we deserve, I do still think we have to do a lot of work to reduce the stigma. 90% of people will have a mental health event in their lifetime, 90%, mm -hmm. that's almost mm -hmm. everyone. So mm -hmm. how do we, why do we consider it as abnormal? This should be mm -hmm. something that we're talking about, that we're normalizing, that we're sort of saying like, hey, yeah, you know what? You're probably gonna have a mental health issue in your lifetime, but you know what? That's a normal thing. So help shouldn't be, it shouldn't ever get to the point where people are having to ask for help because it should be incorporated into our everyday life. Right. Um, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, the culture aspect is such a huge thing, you know, and this was my personal journey as well. Like my, my parents, they still, you know, don't believe in mental health. Right. And for me to sort of have these conversations or like to start these conversations, uh, the struggle at times is uh, to explain to them in simple enough terms as to what mental health would mean. So, you yeah. know, I, I, in your own sort of experience, have you seen, like, how have you seen, you know, people easing into those conversations, right? How do people start those conversations? You know, any advice would be great from that standpoint, yeah. Yeah, I think especially from a cultural perspective. I mean, I grew up in a family that um, was not, did not want to ever demonstrate any distress externally. So like, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to ever show that anything is not totally 100% perfect. And mm -hmm. so I think that, um, um, and that's kind of the opposite about how, how I raise my family. I'm like, we're totally imperfect. I think vulnerability when it's safe, when it feels safe and tiptoeing into those conversations with people who you know are gonna respond um, in a safe, compassionate way is a really good start. I think if you know for a fact that your family's not going to respond well to, you know, you have to choose your battles to like your discussion about mental health. We can't force other people to change. But what we can do is sort of is, is um, we can find other folks who are more receptive. Right. For sure. Yeah. Th uh, thank you for that. And, and you know, and I've sort of had these conversations with my own peers in terms of understanding how we can sort of communicate you know in between ourselves and with our family so that way you know they understand to the extent that they can and we exactly. sort of uh, be uh, as vulnerable as we can be with them as well you know um one thing that i'm seeing with the gen z sort of community that is sort of coming up 
and the future is like you know people are being exposed to the mental health problems earlier than you know the the current sort of norms because you know they're exposed to tech earlier they're exposed to everything almost earlier than all the previous generations you know can you talk a little bit about like what is going on like you know how sort of people can uh, at least you know uh, i don't know secure themselves just for that bit a little longer before you know you you sort of get to a state of getting awareness of what is the right way of doing things as well so yeah I mean, we, we all saw the Surgeon General just came out with a warning about social media um, for younger kids, basically saying, do not let kids have access to social media until they're at least 16 years old. I think that's that's a great start. I think, you know, we have to sort of think about this as Gen Z is, is the first digital native generation. They are the first mm -hmm. generation we've seen who has been, to your point, exposed, oversaturated right. to right. just all the, I'm about to curse, I'm not going to curse, all the crap in the world, right? Mm -hmm. All the terrible, awful things in the world over and over and over again. They have no filter. They're not protected by turning on the news at six o'clock at night. And that's the only news they see. It's constant. So mm -hmm. I sort of view Gen Z as this generation who sort of is collect uh, is suffering from this collective trauma of, mm -hmm. of um, seeing how bad the world is all the time. And so mm -hmm. it has really caused them to sort of behave, and I don't mean to overuse the word trauma, as if they don't have a sense of future. We've got BIPOC and LGBT folk who are um, literally in physical danger all the time. We have mm -hmm. um, other folks, everyone who's sort of suffering from climate anxiety. They don't even mm -hmm. know if there's a world that's going to exist for them in 25 to 30 years. So how they interact with the world, how they interact in the workplace, how they interact with relationships is has been completely different than for older folk who actually can see the next 50 years and say, oh, like there is a life worth living. So it's something right. I feel like we have to understand about this generation and kind of cut them a little bit of a slack. Um, I don't actually think we can win the war against mm -hmm. getting young people off of cell phones. I think unless there's like serious, um, I don't, I don't think that's a war we can win. What we can do, though, is meet them where they are and try to use social media, use technology, use phones to create mindfulness and to say, like, hey, maybe you should be doing something else. So how can we leverage and use technology to sort of um, to to potentially shine the light on why it's problematic? But I think it's a it's a it's a war we're not necessarily going to be able to win. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, I think. Uh, for me, myself, like the amount of technology that I'm getting in or like the amount of information that is sort of becoming influx um, is is such a challenge because I don't know my attention is going in a million different directions and everything is, you know, seeming to want my attention more and more. And it, it's just been uh, it's just been my struggle trying to understand uh, you know, how do I sort of channel that attention as well? And, you know, th this sort of leads into the um, fact of anxiety and attention. C can you talk a little bit about, you know, how those two sort of things pair together and like how we can sort of channelize more of our attention so, you know, we are sort of more, more aware of what we are doing, yeah. 
Right. Yeah. And I, I, to be quite honest, I think the amount we, of time we spend on screens, the amount of time we spend on social media or is it, it makes it really hard because our brains are hardwired to want that level of stimulation, to want that dopamine hit. And when we're constantly checking how many likes we have, when we're constantly checking you know, social media, scrolling, scrolling, swiping, it's just reinforcing. Um, it's reinforcing to our brain in a way that it's kind of like drugs or alcohol, like from an addictive perspective. And so really, you know, some people work well with a harm reduction model, right, where they sort of say, you know what, I'm going to limit myself very concretely to this amount of time during the day. And some people kind of have to notice they kind of have to go cold turkey. But I think especially for um, and then once folks start to come off of that level of sort of uh, stimulus that they're getting consistently, they do notice from my experience that there's more room for attention towards other things. Um, but it also becomes very, very hard because we aren't connecting as much. Thank you, COVID, in real, true, intimate, in-person ways as much. We're losing the very real reward that you get from in-person communication. And so. Mm -hmm. How do you, the question becomes then, well, how do I stay connected? If I'm not checking my text messages all the time, my daughter says this to me, if I'm off my phone, I might miss an invitation to this thing. So I have to be checking my phone. So it's, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. I will say there's been some very interesting data to show that, um, Adolescents who do spend a tremendous amount of time on um, on their phones or on screens, um, their brains actually do work more like someone with an ADHD brain, um, mm -hmm. and that's just the reality. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, like I, I totally feel the the sense of anxiety almost like just having this conversation because, like, you know, I can notice that you know all this information when people are getting in they don't know how to sort of deal with it and like staying away from your devices is such a huge challenge because you know it, it used to be the case where the devices were trying to get us to where we need to be and now it's almost like the device is controlling us in you know doing everything that we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis as well um you know th that being said you know one of the things that i am sort of trying to understand as well uh, has been the case where what you know, what if the normal conventional methods don't work for you, right? Like, what if therapy doesn't work for you? So, like, you know, in your own sort of experience, like, how do you sort of handle handle these challenges? Like, what are some alternatives that you have seen that have sort of helped people uh, in their own sort of mental health journey? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that really depends on kind of um, what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish. So that would look really, really different from someone who has sort of treatment resistant depression who, that doesn't you know there are lots of alternatives um you know that we're starting to see in the pharmaceutical world like ketamine and psilocybin and mdma and these sort of newer more novel they're actually not that novel at this point but they're starting to get a lot of a lot of press that i mm -hmm. think really can work transmagnetic stimulation things that sort of mm -hmm. work more on the brain chemistry um mm -hmm. to allow for different wiring connections so that's definitely mm -hmm. something Scene. I also mm -hmm. think for a lot of people who don't actually feel comfortable or don't feel that um, therapy is affordable or accessible or they can find a therapist that meets their needs, I think mm -hmm. some of the digital health, um, some of the digital health solutions out there have been shown to be really effective. So some of the more self-guided uh, digital health solutions, but please, 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 when you're looking at digital health solutions, look for ones that are science-based, are based in right. science developed by actual experts 
not mm-hmm. just anything. Um, we've seen a lot of um, really great um, advancements in peer support as well. Mm-hmm. And I think peer support has a has a lot of evidence for a substance use disorder for addiction. Um, mm-hmm. And we're starting to see it be introduced in, in other ways. And um, But you also have to be very, very careful with peer support to make pe- sure that people are well-trained and they have an understanding and it's still sort of an unregulated field. So I think there mm-hmm. are tons of options out there that are becoming more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just a question of making sure that we're measuring outcomes and making sure that these things that really work. Definitely. And, you know, in term, so one problem I see is access. The other problem is awareness. So how do how do people sort of understand that, you know, such platforms are even available, right? I mean, I, I feel like, you know, at times when, for one, when I wanted to ask for help, I didn't know where to go. I didn't even know what I needed help for. And like, you know, I, I just wanted to get your perspective on like, how, how do people sort of better approach this to sort of understand, you know, get, getting towards help as well? Yeah, I think that's where... To contradict what I just said, that's where actually social media is really powerful because actually what's crazy is, do you know that 70% of Gen Z Mm -hmm. gets their first line of mental health information on TikTok? So Mm -hmm. that's equally terrifying because who knows what they're actually getting on TikTok, but it also Mm -hmm. means that there is this real conversation starter on social media where people are normalizing the discussion. And that's Mm -hmm. a good thing. So mm-hmm. I do think um, it's it's really hard to know, like you can get some really good information and start to explore. But I would say if you do think that you need help, you know, it's hard because Googling, you don't know what's good and what's bad. I would say things to look at um, from a mm-hmm. digital health perspective are, um, is this a, a scientifically batched program? Is this a program mm-hmm. that actually is based in some sort of science or evidence base? Are mm-hmm. there experts clinicians, psychologists who are licensed, who are behind the company on the team. Um, Mm -hmm. These are two really, really good signs. Do you, can you afford this? (laughs) Is this Mm -hmm. something that you afford? Is this something that you feel like um, from a marketing perspective, do they meet their needs? Are they taking care? I would also look Mm -hmm. at reviews, right? Like looking at, unfortunately, if you look at places, things like BetterHelp or Talkspace, look at the reviews. They're not so great. <laughs> like they're mm-hmm. they, so really looking at the reviews, looking at like thinking about critically, is this something that could potentially help me or not? But I mm-hmm. agree, like, it's really hard. And and even though companies are spending millions and millions of dollars trying to market themselves, I think to your point, there's this real difficulty in trying to separate like what's va- what's valuable, what's high quality, what's safe, and what's not. Definitely. And also, are companies that you are thinking about working with, are they measuring and demonstrating outcomes? Are they showing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. publishing research on how that they're actually effective? The same way that you mm-hmm. want your doctor to, to do that, right? To follow best yeah. practice. Definitely. And, 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 the, and the last thing was like, you know, the data itself. I know that, you know, the data itself has been biased in the past where like, you know, people of color have not even been taken into account. Right. And and, and I try to understand sometimes like when when some of the historical approaches are sort of recommended for people um, in the current generation. Like, you know, how do you sort of see the bias, Uh, like, you know, being sort of taking over some of the prescriptive actions that happen? And like, do you see a change in the data that's being even collected and like the way people are being sort of approached 
to sort of improve or reduce the bias that you know gets uh, added on there as well so no it's such a really really important question because here i am talking about science backed evidence based but the reality is that a lot of the research studies that have been done on gold standard at, at treatments are usually done on white people. And so it's mm -hmm. a really, really important question to ask yourself is, do you see um, people of color represented in the treatment team on the executive mm -hmm. team are when you're developing any product? Is this a product that's actually um, that where the company isn't intentionally trying to develop without bias are mm -hmm. who does they look at? like we're developing for um mm -hmm. folks who hold multiple identities that's really mm -hmm. important for us, so it runs through every single thing we do mm -hmm. and at the same time i'm a white cisgendered you know heterosexual female and so mm -hmm. there is going to be bias that i hold and so i better be sure to check myself and make sure that my team does not necessarily look like me that we're incorporating feedback and user research from the people who we actually want to meet ultimately mm -hmm. i think it's about um acknowledging that whatever you do there is going to be bias um mm -hmm. but also from a consumer perspective pay attention to how you feel and look for the signs and the signals to indicate whether or not this is a, a company an organization a person who's willing mm -hmm. to have those tough conversations right mm -hmm. um and in because it, it is not always the case it's a really really important point and um you know in terms of policy itself have you seen any changes to sort of mandate you know this kind of biases being sort of taken away when people sort of you know push in the data or like you know get the standard because i i, I understand that you know we can recommend companies to do it but you know unless there is a mandate i don't see that happening you know from from the company's perspective no no there, there's no there's no policy or mandates it's totally on the company to decide whether to be um, dei friendly and to assess and address their own biases or not and it's also really hard it's really tricky because even companies that have all the right intentions can't do this perfectly because running a company isn't and running a business isn't always totally in line with um the best diversity equity and inclusion work that's out there and so even though like i would even argue like we do the absolute best we can and we are not perfect by any means but I think what we do do is we acknowledge our imperfection and we sort of say that this is a journey that we are on and we will continue to grow and assess and measure and make sure to your point that the data demonstrates like built into our assessment process is making sure that um, the same numbers of people who drop out of treatment are the same across identities. So we don't want to see 90% of white people are staying in treatment and 10% of people of color. So like mm -hmm. we have it as part of our self-evaluation, we collect our own data. There's no mandate to do it. It's just mm -hmm. part of what we do because that's those are the expectations we hold for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But those metrics are not always in line with good business practices, or at least people believe they're not. And so they're mm -hmm. not going to make that investment. I fundamentally believe that um, those will help us be a stronger, better business. That those things are totally aligned. That's why we okay. do it. Okay, and and you know, thank you for like highlighting that, right? I mean, like the 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 last thing is like, um, if somebody were to be starting something new, say today I decide, hey, Sanjay decides, you know, they're going to start a, a company with like trying to sort of inculcate those practices. Like, you know, what are some of the things that you know Sanjay needs to keep track of 
to make sure that you know they are sort of reinventing the wheel for one for two like you know n- not sort of uh, doing having to go through the same processes that you have gone through and some of the mistakes that you've done along the way so c- can you highlight just a little bit about that yeah i i can try but i think it's um i would say there are no quick and dirty solutions and i think okay. that um mindfulness awareness and intentionality but then pairing that mindfulness awareness with action so you have to measure it you have to actually say you can't just say oh my goal is to be a super diverse company and my goal is to have everyone feel included you actually have to measure it you have to have it measurable and then you have to be accountable to those metrics right so mm-hmm. my entire team knows that we hold ourselves accountable to those metrics. So I would also say though the one thing like very tactically tangibly for companies to do is when you are trying to measure early and often, make sure that it is mission vision aligned. The worst thing that you can do is as a company is sort of say, "Oh, we want to be this great diverse place." And then not do the work to do it cuz then you're going to basically you're going to get folks in who think you're a safe place who think you're a really good place and they're going to be disappointed Mm-hmm. And that being said, you can't control other people. Not every company is a great fit for every employee and every worker. Um mm-hmm. but the best thing to do is be really authentic about who and where you are in the work and measure. Measure, measure, measure. Interesting. Um uh, the point is like have you seen metrics from your own company or your own sort of workplace? Have they trending have they been trending upwards or like have you seen like dips and falls and like how do you sort of deal with that sort of anxiety as well at times wherein like you don't know that you know things don't work and like you have to sort of still stick around yeah <laughs> I, i think for me i have a very very high tolerance for um uncertainty very high i think to be a startup founder you have to have a well, you should it will make your life easier if you have a very high tolerance for uncertainty i'm willing and i i'm not afraid of um iteration and failure so like i'm not a person who just personally my personality if like i see data to me data is neutral it shows me that where i need to improve it's not mm-hmm. an attack against me personally i don't feel like a failure um mm-hmm. i feel like oh great this it's like sort of how i used to talk to my patients who were struggling with their weight on a scale it's like mm-hmm. the best thing to do with data and information is to really look at it as if it's neutral and to mm-hmm. not assign judgment to it so if you're up 2 pounds let that be an indicator to you if you don't want to be that maybe you have to do something differently not beat yourself up and create a shame spiral because that will just interfere with you achieving your your mission and achieving your goals so mm-hmm. ultimately i try to perpetuate that across across the company which we really are a culture of learning and iteration and it's our job to make sure that um we are looking at the data in a neutral way we know where we want to go aspirationally if we're not mm-hmm. there we have to do something differently to get there interesting yeah yeah. Uh, yeah 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 and, and yeah i mean like i think uh one of the things while doing the podcast as well like you know there are going to be some people who are going to look at the same discussion and take something uh, away and some people are going to be very sort of negative and say hey you know what this person doesn't know what they're talking about you know we're just sort of going to ignore um and you know it, it was a great point because you know i can sort of look at it as though i'm spreading the message around i'm just a messenger and don't shoot the messenger because you know i i am not saying i am the expert i'm just saying that this is a thing that you know i want to talk about as well um yeah. you know one thing that i'm trying to do as part of being inclusive is asking people 
things that they do when they're really stressed out. And, you know, and I've asked people who've come in from, you know, different uh, aspects of society and everybody has given them, given me their own sort of perspective on like what works for them. And, you know, and that's been very insightful and I'm doing this uh, with you as well. So, you know, can you tell me a little bit about like what things you do when you feel that sense of anxiousness or like overwhelm or, you know, <laughs> kind of uncontrollable emotion that sort of pops up as well. So. Totally. And I'm a very emotional person. So like, although I can tolerate anxiety and tolerate distress and uncertainty really, really well, I'm also very, I have big emotions. And so this is mm -hmm. something that I've had to kind of work on my whole life. A couple of things about me. One, I have ADHD. And so I know that I'm not neurotypical. I know that I need certain things to in order to keep me balanced and regulated. And so part of I think what I do is about prevention is mm -hmm. preventing myself from being vulnerable to my really big emotions. And for me, that's a lot about eating. Pro I mean, all the basic stuff that you hear all the time, eating properly, making sure I'm getting at least five days a week of exercise, which is a really, really a lot, right. But because mm -hmm. I have so much energy and so much stimulation, Mm -hmm. It's like it's it's very important. And then um, and then really just engaging in um, the things that like you were saying earlier, doing the things that um, I know are going to make me feel like I'm living a valuable life. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's not spending too much time at work. It's making sure that I'm going I'm spending enough time with my children. It's mm -hmm. making sure I'm looking at nature sometimes. And I'm very privileged and I have the ability to go outside and take a walk in a safe neighborhood. But I think to your point, it is about finding those things that make you feel like you're living a valued life and doing them as much as possible. So Definitely. some of that's routine, but some of it's also a little bit preventative. In terms of when I actually though get so overwhelmed and I feel like I can't cope, Mm -hmm. Like that's when I sort of go to the science-based things, which are like, I take a cold shower, I splash cold water on my face, I go to get like intense exercise to sort of calm me down. I'll do a breathing exercise. Cognitively, I will remind myself that like this will pass. Emotions mm -hmm. are like waves and this will pass if I wait and let, let it go long enough. And even just that mindfulness of calling attention. I'm really overwhelmed right now. I am feeling like I can't handle things and like, okay, I'm going to notice that. And I'm going to tell mm -hmm. myself you can mm -hmm. handle it mm -hmm. and it will pass. And this is just yep. temporary and emotions are like waves. They will they <laughs> ebb flow. And so this will, this, this too shall pass. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, since you are working in the startup space, you know, have you seen some problems? And this is something that I've been asking of late of startup founders. Have you seen some problem that you know can be solved, but isn't being solved? You know, so just to get people curious on some of the problems that are there in the mental health space, which need attention, but isn't getting enough attention as well. So. I mean, it, it can be hypothetical. It can be something, if you don't have an answer, that's fine too, so. <laughs> Wait, sorry. I just want to make sure that I'm giving you the answer to the question you want. Can you say that again? Because I'm, I'm so, unclear about what I'm supposed to be answering. I so will have an answer. The, no, so, so, so the, the question is like, you know, uh, sometimes what we look at is like, we need a problem definition for us to come up with a solution. And, you know, from mental health standpoint, you know, there are so many problems. And some of the problems are solvable. But, you know, even that having that awareness of what are these problems which are not being solved, that can be solved, um, yeah. is a big deal. And I'm trying to ask people, if you know of such problems that people can solve but aren't paying enough attention to, 
you know let me know if not that's fine yeah. too. no 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 i know exactly what how i want to answer that question thank you for clarifying um i fundamentally believe that um in this country the financial incentives of the people the stakeholders the physicians the therapists the insurance company the healthcare systems and the consumer are not aligned mm -hmm. right they're just they're not the same the incentives are not aligned in order to get people the highest quality care they need and to me that's mm -hmm. the biggest problem is mm -hmm. how do you create a business a structure an entity a healthcare system that aligns the financial incentives of all the people involved and that's the mm -hmm. only way that we're going to see real change and again that's an access to care issue that's my that's my jam that's what i'm obsessed with is how do we get everyone to be able to live a more fulfilling more satisfying more resilient life yeah thank you uh, for highlighting that because uh, i feel like everybody is sort of stuck in their own ways in terms of solving the problem to access but you know uh, uh, one thing that i've noticed is like along the way you either get rerouted or you get stuck solving the wrong problem and uh, you know they just want to make sure you're still looking at the big picture and right. understanding that uh, that you know you are still solving the problem that you really want to solve as well um and and that being said you know um, i like to ask people what are some things you want people to take away from this conversation if there were like a few things that you want to sort of highlight uh, what yeah. would they be i think i would say that like mental health is not something that you should just pay attention to when things get bad it's something that you should pay attention to every single day in your life in mm -hmm. a tiny little way if you can but just creating mm -hmm. that mindfulness around not waiting until things get too bad i think um and then um i would say um that's probably the biggest is that is that spending a little bit of time focusing on on um on on that on what you can do to live a more valued life um and even just cultivating that awareness or asking that question can be very therapeutic thank you yeah uh, thank you for sharing that and the conversation has been great you know and some of the questions were all impromptu that just came to me as you were speaking and you know i, I, I hope i asked all the right questions but uh, thank there you again no for right your questions. time there are no right questions it was it was and great you, to chat yeah yeah and you said it right yeah thank you thank you again thank you uh, whoops